All right, so if you could stand up, let's take your Bibles. We're not doing calisthenics. Let's read Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 10. And then I'll get into what I'll do is read the Scripture. We'll exalt the Lord for what He's revealed to us in the Scriptures. I'll pray. Then you can sit. Those are your instructions. And then I'll explain to you what we're going to do for the next few weeks. Okay? Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you for the immeasurable riches that you provided to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, there's nothing in us that merits our salvation but purely your grace outpoured in our lives through Jesus and by the Spirit. So, Father, for that we give you praise. Lord, I pray that you would bless this next hour. Lord, I pray that even as we begin to talk about how you have uh, reigned and ruled throughout the history of your church, Lord, I, I pray that you would increase our worship of you. Lord, I pray that we would be uh, more humble I pray, Lord, that we would desire to pursue holy, holiness more because of our understanding of who you are and what you've done to build your church. And, Lord, that is uh, a great reality that we worship you, that you are building your church. So we ask that you bless this time. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. And you may be seated. All right, so let's just verify. My, okay, my presentation works, so that's good news. All right, so you have a handout, which does somebody else have? You don't have a handout. This young man right here, Timothy, will provide handouts to you. And when you bring one to everyone else, can you bring one to me? I just want to make sure I stay on track. <laughs> um. <clears throat> Thank you. Anyone else? Okay, so I have entitled this lesson, The Synod of Dort, God's Grace in the Netherlands. Um, we're going to talk about what the Synod of Dort is. Not everyone knows what that is. But why did I choose this topic? If you were here last year, or in last fall, was the, we kind of commemorated the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and I spent six weeks 
talking about Martin Luther um, for the most part. Jason helped me. He taught one class as well. So we celebrated the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther and God's um, grace towards the church in bringing the idea of justification by faith alone through grace alone in Christ alone, uh, to the forefront of the church in the 1500s. I liked that theme so much, I just looking for a topic that might have another significant anniversary, and the Synod of Dort gives us that opportunity today, uh, or actually all of this year. So that's what we're going to talk about, is the Synod of Dort, which convened in November of 1618 in the Netherlands. So your first blank in the introduction is, this year marks the 400th anniversary of the Synod of Dort, which convened in the Netherlands. <clears throat> I have no idea what the next blank is, so we'll have to figure it out. <laughs> um, there, the Synod of Dort, the canons of Dort were composed in the opposition to the remonstrance, and it outlined the five points of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace. So there you go. Your other blank should be canons, remonstrance, and five points. <clears throat> All right, so this was, there was a reformed church that had begun in the Netherlands, and we'll talk about that in a second, that produced the canons of Dort's. The canons of Dort are a response of Dort are a response to a group of people called the Remonstrants, and they had five points in which the fathers at Dort were responding to. Now, some of us refer to that as that's the tulip. Let's just not bury the lead here. Let's go ahead and say it. The five points of the Synod of Dort are the tulip of what we represent as the five points of Calvinism. Um, so let's talk about terms real quick. I'm going to intermix several terms here. Calvinism, Reformed, and Doctrines of Grace. Now, I know you can kind of nuance each of those terms a little bit for different things, different purposes. So if I say one of those things, I'm probably meaning about the same thing. For the idea of Calvinism, though, it's not limited to the five points, okay? There's more to Calvinism. There's a whole church structure, governance, polity, uh, a variety of other things there. The, my aim of this class is not to create Calvinists. So let me just set that out. That's not my goal. My goal is to identify an important document in the history of the church that helps lead people to worship, humility, and holy living. You can make arguments with the points all you want, um, and you can talk to me. I'm not looking to dialogue about that. Um, but my goal is to, to show how throughout the ages of the church, whether it's the Westminster Confession of Faith, whether it's the Nicene Creed, whether it's the Apostles' Creed, whether it's the Heidelberg Catechism, there are documents that have been revealed in the church that are to our benefit and for us to study those and to be encouraged by those, okay? Um, um, I will lay my cards on the table, though, um, I, I, I do agree with most everything in the canons of Dort, but I don't, it's not my goal is to argue for them, okay? It might come across that way, so just slap my hand if that's the case. Um, but I do want to be very gracious 
and um, uh, um, appropriately measured in how we talk about this topic. All right, so, so the canons of Dort actually represent three, one, the canons of Dort is one of three documents for what's called the three forms of unity, that's your next blank, so the canons of Dort make up part of the three forms of unity for the Dutch church, along with the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism. <clears throat> and the, these three forms of unity try to connect how the Reformed faith is connected to the ancient understanding of the Bible. The Belgic Confession itself, you can take a break for a second, there's nothing to write for a second. The Belgic Confession itself was written in 1561, primarily by a guy by the name of Guido. That's always fun to say, right? Might be from New Jersey. Uh, Debray. And he wrote that, and he was trying to convince the king of that area of Belgium, which is just to the south of the Netherlands, and you can see that right here. So here's your map of Europe. So Belgium, to the, this is to your, this side of you where I am. Uh, the Netherlands is just to the north of Belgium. And the, the area just to the east of the Netherlands is a part of Germany. And it has a similar geography. So that northwestern portion of Germany, the Netherlands, and uh, Belgium represent what's called the Low Countries. And they're called the Low Countries because they're all below almost that entire set of land is either completely flat or below sea level. So that's the low countries. Um, so there's kind of a, a unique uh, relationship between the, the, the people of the Netherlands and Belgium. So that's why they've embraced the Belgic Confession. Okay, so when I talk about the Netherlands, you talk about Holland, the Netherlands, Dutch. Those are all words for the Netherlands. But why are you throwing in Belgium, Matt? Well, that's why. The proximity is right there. So the idea for the Belgic Confession, when it was written, was to convince Philip, the king of Spain, are you all ready for this? This is so convoluted, the history, uh, of the Reformed faith and its connection uh, to the ancient uh, biblical truths. And then in 1563, the Heidelberg Catechism was written by a gentleman by the name of Zacharias Yersinius, and his goal was to help teach the Reformed faith to those who had been heavily influenced by Catholic and, in some ways, Lutheran theology in 1563. So, Luther's 1517 comes on the stage, and throughout the first half of the 1500s, the church in the German states is being influenced heavily by Luther and Lutheranism. But as you get your way further uh, to the west, away from the main parts of Germany, closer to Belgium and to the Netherlands, that those German states were reformed in some ways. So that's where Heidelberg comes from in the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, so we kind of had these three topics. I wanted to introduce those to you because those documents predate um, this, the, uh, the canons of Dort, which come out of the Synod of Dort. Uh, they predate that by almost 60 years. Um, so I, I noted about my desire to see uh, that uh, by reviewing the canons of Dort, that, that would increase uh, 
in all of our hearts, mine, yours, our desire for humility, holiness, and uh, worship of the Lord. And that's really uh, at the conclusion of the Synod of Dort, there's a quote that's great that the, 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 the fathers that wrote uh, that document talk about and in giving instruction about, hey, you now have all of this theology, what do you do with it? And this is what it said. It says, finally, this synod urges all fellow ministers in the gospel of Christ to deal with this teaching in a godly and reverent manner in the academic institutions as well as in the churches, to do so both in their speaking and writing with a view, catch this, several things, with a view, as they teach it, to the glory of God's name so that God would be proclaimed, to holiness of life, and to the comfort of anxious souls. And that the idea is here to teach people the idea of assurance. Okay, so let's go back to my map. Excited about my PowerPoint presentation. The next slide is not my favorite, but it's exciting. But we'll talk about this real quick. So the Netherlands, this is where it loca- is located in Europe compared to the other aspects of it. You can see it has a unique situation as far as it's situated near the United Kingdom. So um, we're talking about an era right around the dawn of the 1600s at this point. Um, so the Reformation has come to England. Henry VIII is dead. Um, and at this point in history, in the United Kingdom, which is England, um, Elizabeth is on the throne, and she has what's called the Via Medea. That's the middle way. The middle way represents a middle way between Protestantism and Catholicism, okay? So you've got that going on in England. And then you have Germany, and then kind of just to the south of Belgium is parts of Switzerland. And in Switzerland, you've got uh, where Ulrich Zwingli was when he did the Reformation about the same time as Luther. And you also have Geneva, which is where Calvin's from, okay? So you have all that going on. Calvin is sending missionaries out of his epicenter in Geneva, and he's sending them to France, which is reigned by a Catholic king. And so they're doing missions work there, and they're also sending missionaries into Belgium and into the Netherlands, where there's, uh, it's ruled by another Catholic king, which is Philip. Okay, so that's that map. And then the second map is actually just the Netherlands. This is what it looks like. Uh, so you can see a lot of water tributaries, um, a, lot of, a lot of water going on there. How about that? But I've, I've, I've circled several key places, just so you know. Uh, the, the, the one up in the top is Amsterdam. And as you come to the western coast, it's The Hague. That's where their government is. A lot of, uh, a lot of government goes on there. Is that where the Nobel Prize is? Is it The Hague? Am I, did I make that up? Is that right? Uh, over to the right from The Hague is Rotterdam. Uh, you get a cup of coffee if you can tell me who is from Rotterdam. Anybody famous from Rotterdam in the 1500s? Anybody? This is, no, you, you don't count and you don't count. <laughs> All right, it's Erasmus. So Erasmus, who in the 1500s translated the Bible, uh, the Greek New Testament. Um, so, and he's the, his manuscript for the Greek New Testament is what Luther used to translate the uh, Bible into German. Yeah, so the Huguenot, I will reference the Huguenots, yes. Um, yeah, it is the same period of time. So Rotterdam is famous because it has Erasmus, who's the greatest humanist scholar of the Catholic Church. That's basic understanding of him. 
just to the south of Rotterdam is Dorchek, which is where the Synod of Dort is held. I could not identify why we don't call it the Synod of Dorchek. I mean, I figured that was not that important a topic for me to understand, but it is the Synod of Dort, how we've, it's been passed down to us. Um, if you all want to spend your time researching that this week, let me know what happens. Okay, so that, that kind of gives us an introduction of... I was going to spend some time, and I just don't think I should do it, but just I think I emphasized earlier that the church has kind of continually over the ages um, come together at certain times to clarify doctrine, to clarify stances on certain positions, and whether that's in the early church uh, with the, the Christological uh, um, councils that were done to identify what is the nature of Jesus, is Jesus fully man, is he fully God, those questions were answered early on in the ancient church. What is the Trinity? How should we think of God, Father, and the Holy Spirit? Those things were all solved in the early church by council. And that continued up into the Roman Catholic age. Councils met all the time. Um, it's one of the rejections, actually, that Luther makes, is that popes and councils don't have authority that supersedes the Word of God. Um, so in no way does the Synod of Dort do that. But I'm trying to illustrate to you that there's a pattern for the church coming together uh, to make decisions. There are, even, there are even examples of Protestant churches, Protestant groups coming together in this century and in the previous century. Um, I think in 1978 was the uh, Chicago Conference on Inerrancy. It's where conservative evangelicals came together to talk about um, is the Bible inerrant and what does that mean? So that, that happened. Uh, more recently, just in the last year, uh, we have a statement that was produced by many conservative evangelicals, and that's the Nashville Statement. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but that talks about uh, the biblical understanding of gender and sexuality. So those things have come out more recently. So the churches, this is, this is not new, just because these guys decide to get together at the Synod of Dort, that's not n a novel thing, okay? Have I belabored that point enough? Okay, thank you. Um... All right, so I think I've already told you what my goal is, and I hope that works for you. So you should be on section two of your handout. All right, so before we get to how we got, how did the Netherlands get the Reformed faith adopted, we get to have some fun. All right, so when I even say the Netherlands, what do you think about? Okay? Because it seems like we're not thinking of, it's not like, do you even have thoughts about the Netherlands? So I came up with things for myself. One, and this is not Calvinistic in its basis, but tulips. Uh, tulips are like the flower of the Netherlands. Did you know they're not native to the Netherlands? Anybody know that? Okay, I've got two knotted heads. They were like imported from the Ottoman Empire, modern-day Turkey, in the 1500s. And so, anyway, tulips, big deal, 1500s in the Netherlands. Next, the thing that's helping probably water those tulips is that uh, windmill. People are really into windmills there. Um, so I'm neither a gardener or a horticulturalist nor an engineer, but I'm sure these windmills have something to do with the next thing, which is canals. There are canals throughout all of Amsterdam and the major cities because that water has to go somewhere when you're seated, when you're seated below sea level. Something's got to happen. You've got to have all these things to take water from place to one place. Channels, thank you. I was going to say estuaries, but I don't know if that's right or not. 
So that leads to the next thing, which is my favorite thing, and that's speed skating. Are y'all, who loves the Winter Olympics? Me, Emily, yes. Uh, the Dutch dominate. So the Dutch, that's the Netherlands, that's Holland's, the same thing. So I have all these terms that are, I use that are synonymous. They dominate speed skating, right? And they, have, they wear these orange outfits, and they just, you know, and they win, and like the whole nation goes crazy. And anyway, so that's speed skating. You know, they have now, they have short track speed skating, but the Dutch are into long track speed skating, okay? That's not the short track where they fall around, looks like roller derby. That's the legit classic speed skating. And they got the really long blades. Okay, so, okay, orange is such a big deal with them. They all wear orange. So I was amazed to find out that that's their flag. Where's the orange for the love? Red, white, and blue. It's like an American flag. So anyway, no orange on the flag, but we'll get to that in a second why they like orange so much. Uh, next are Dutch wooden shoes. I don't know, does anybody, act, who knows anything about those? Do they actually wear them, or are they just there to look pretty? Okay. Okay, so Dutch shoes, a lot of artistry. And then the last, Van Gogh is Dutch, as is Rembrandt. So uh, definitely some noted artists as well. So that's what we know about the Netherlands, okay? There's probably much more to know about it. And actually, there's a lot of negative things to know about the Netherlands today. Uh, let me just play, put those cards on the table, too. Probably the most secular um, state, uh, a government, and uh, a society is the Netherlands um, as far as their acceptance of immorality um, and uh, refusal to rank themselves under what the Lord would uh, cause, call proper um, trying to be proper in how I say this. So it's uh, interesting for sure. But after, around this time, also in the 1600s, uh, the Dutch were very much involved in um, conquering different areas and definitely things you could uh, argue against how they colonized other locations, uh, especially in the African states, uh, African continent. Uh, but definitely a lot of things going on, but a very prosperous society in the Netherlands in the 1600s. Okay, so that was fun. That brings us to these guys. All right, so how did the Reformed Church come to be in the Netherlands? All right, we've got two guys up there that are very important. One, King Philip of Spain. So Spain's down here, the Netherlands is up here, and France is in between. Somehow Spain is ruling the Netherlands, Belgium, and the Low Countries. Once again, another research topic for you and not for me. Um, but the first promoters of the Reformed faith um, were actually French speakers. So they came in, people from France came into these low countries and started preaching the doctrines of the Reformed faith. And these guys would have been influenced by Calvin, of course. Uh, the country at the time, or that territory, was reigned by King Philip of Spain, if any point of history from like 1400 to like 1950, the kings and queens of Europe are all related in some way. It's crazy to think about. So um, Philip is related to several other people as well. And at this time, Philip was continuing kind of the Roman Catholic, uh, the Spanish Roman Catholic idea of the Inquisition. So he was looking to stamp out any Protestant uh, movements in his territories 
Uh, so not only did this faith come to this area, but it came with great persecution as well. Um, so you mentioned the Huguenots earlier at the same time that the French uh, uh, Catholic king or queen at the, king at the time, I guess Francis, was persecuting the Huguenots as well for their Protestant faith. Um, but due to this tyranny um, in the Low Countries, um, these, the people actually revolted in 1579. And this guy led the revolt. This is William of Orange. So that's where we get the orange. So orange is just the name of their house. So you might have the Tudors or the whatever the current house is in England, uh, the Windsors. Uh, he's of the House of Orange. Um, so that's why they embrace the color orange so much is because they still trace their independence to this period of time. Um, so William of Orange led the revolt. Um, the the uh, followers of the Reformed faith, just for simplicity, we'll call them the Calvinists, um, followed um, Calvin's teaching on this. And Calvin had written that people had the right to revolt against evil emperors and kings if they were the victims of tyranny. So, probably some gray areas there. What does tyranny represent? But these Calvinists felt like they had um, the sponsorship of John Calvin to be a part of this revolution against the king of Spain. And they triumphed. Um, so, as they triumph, they actually break away from Spain and they establish what's called the United Provinces, or as we have commonly called it now, the Netherlands. <clears throat> and now you have blanks I haven't thought about. Um, so, the United Provinces are the Netherlands, um, and then Belgium remained under the reign of Philip in the new government in the um, Netherlands sponsored the Reformed faith over and against the Catholic Church of Philip. Okay, so you think about this. A new authority comes into play. Uh, William of Orange leads the uh, revolt against King Philip. Uh, it wouldn't be appropriate for William of Orange or those that followed him to embrace the religion of the previous regime. So that's why he's got to find somewhere else find another faith to pursue. I don't know if he was, I don't think there's not enough out there to say he was convicted by the Reformed faith to be a follower of it himself, but that was the next largest group of people to bring about uh, what would be uh, the religion of the area. And just remember, this is the day, there's no separation of church and state at this time. The church and the state are very closely intermingled. They're related together, okay? So, Throw out all your American sensibilities about understanding what the church and state relationship is, should be. That's not what happened at this time, okay? We're, we're, we're working through that as a people in humanity to separate those two entities. Um, so let's look at your blanks. Let's see. So the, rich, the Reformed Church emerged from a great struggle. French speakers from Geneva, and get this, France brought the message to the area, and it was ruled by Philip, the king of Spain. And it was the time of the Roman Catholic Inquisition. A date here. In 
1579, the Low Countries revolted against Spain and were led by William of Orange. And then Calvin had written about the rights of people to rebel against the tyranny of kings and emperors. C, upon receiving their independence, the new state sponsored the Reformed faith as the religion of the land. And then D, as what always happens when the church and the state are related, the church gave up some of its autonomy. It had to answer questions about its membership and even some of its pastors due to its relationship with the state. So that, so that this, any time the church and the state are uh, um, interconnected, it's going to create um, issues with one or the other, and most likely the church. Um, and so in, in, some sta- in some ways, the church is having to bring in membership that might really not confess to the Belgic Confession or the Heidelberg uh, Catechism that they so held to because those, those people that were in charge of the government had to be part of the religion of the state. So it kind of waters down the faith, doesn't it? So that's questions for, um, for the church. How closely should they hold to the Belgic Confession as a rule? And then do they have the right to expel those from office whose teaching was in conflict with their teachings? So, um, so you kind of have the state saying, what's important here too is there's value in some people in that society still having relationships with Spain. Um, there's this large merchant class that is, is, is becoming... Um, Um, more influential at that time in Europe. And for them, it'd be great to be able to trade with Spain. But if you're not able to trade with Spain because of religious reasons, that's a problem. Um, Now, if you have people that maybe aren't convinced that the Reformed faith is the way that the church should operate, and they are involved in the church, maybe they don't take as hard line a stance or understanding of the Belgic Confession or the Heidelberg Catechism, so let's say those people aren't as strict and they get into leadership in the church, that kind of affects uh, the church on some level, right? Um, and the state has a vested interest that the church allows more people involved in it because they're trying to protect the unity of the state. They're not concerned about the unity of the ch- church per se as long as what the church is doing doesn't impact the state. So if the state um, is splintered, when King Philip comes back to say, hey, I'd like to fight you guys again, and this is the period of the 80 years war, there is still conflict going on. Um, is, are they going to take up their arms and fight if they're unified, or are they going to say, oh, you know what? What King Philip has to offer might be better. Complicated, very complicated. So, um, so that is the, um, that's what's happening in the Netherlands at the time of um, the next um, opposition that occurs in the church. All right, so you are on page two, handout. All right, so then we're going to do a little biography real quick um, of the next character, and that's Jacobus Arminius. Uh, We could call him Jacob Arminius, but we like to Latinize things and call him Jacobus. 
I've also seen his name as James. So if you're researching things, I've seen him as James, Jacob, or Jacobus. Okay, he lived from 1560 to 1609. He was born in the Netherlands, and he actually trained in Geneva as a student of Theodore Besa. So he was a student of Theodore Besa, who was Calvin's successor in Geneva. So he left Geneva as a staunch defender of Calvin's theological system, and he took up a professorship at Amsterdam. So he held positions first at Amsterdam, and then in 1601, he transferred his professorship to Leiden, L-E-I-D-E-N. Hey, there's that guy. There's Mr. Arminius. And there he clashed with a gentleman by the name of, um, where's the name? Up there. We'll figure it out. It's up there, right? Thank you. Franciscus Gomarus, over the doctrine of election, was their primary concern. So actually, uh, in Amsterdam, Arminius is um, actually called to refute another man's teaching, uh, who was arguing against um, the Calvinist position of salvation. And Arminius takes up the charge of studying that to refute this person. And he actually turns out being, he converts to what that guy was teaching. So he, he actually, and we need to give Arminius credit, he's wholeheartedly trying to find, seek out the truth in some ways. You know, he's, he's, he's reviewing the Bible to come up with answers about what his theology is, and it's in opposition to the Calvinists. Um, so he, start, he even has some of those tendencies while he's in Amsterdam, but then he's offered this other position in Leiden, and of all the people at this point, Gomaris is responsible, is one of the men responsible for interviewing him and checking to see, hey, is his, is his, does his theology check out? Is he, is he orthodox? And... Um, Gomaris is aware of these other concerns in his life, but he kind of says he's okay. He, he agrees to teach only what's in the Belgic Confession of Faith. And so he allows that to happen. There's probably some leniency in the universities, though, to other views of uh, theology because they're not trying to rock the boat. They're trying to embrace, be a little bit more tolerable and tolerant of certain things. So Gamaris, who actually ends up being his chief rival in arguing against him, actually gave him his stamp of approval first. Oh, the ironies of history. <clears throat> so primarily, um, so he clashed with, so they primarily over the doctrine of election, despite his agreement to follow the Belgic confession. But as when he, when in Leiden, that he uh, began teaching through uh, Romans, that he really started to reveal uh, what he believed. So I've, I've, I've given you, um, so he starts shifting away from Orthodox Calvinism. So I've given you some blanks there. I'm just going to give you some highlights of what he thinks about each of these sections of Scripture in Romans 7 and following. Um, Interesting note real quick, though. So as he's preaching and teaching, he is um, not 
publishing any works for his opinions. It's almost like he didn't want a paper trail to say, this is what I'm teaching, because I know, he says, I know that the church will condemn what he's teaching. So he's not writing works that are being published. Now, he's writing things down that will eventually be published, okay? But he's just kind of speaking, and he kind of has some relationships with some students where he's kind of providing his um, ideas and thoughts around certain topics. So during Romans, so in Romans 7, uh, so this is where Paul is talking like, hey, uh, oh, wretched man that I am, why do I do the things that I don't want to do and do, don't do the things that are the opposite of that? <clears throat> so um, Arminius concluded that Paul um, was actually unregenerate at that time. He believed he was not saved. He, ha- he had not been regenerated. Um, he knew, he said Paul knew that he was under the law, which was unable to save him, but he was seeking after salvation at that time. So that's what Arminius said. So then as he goes through to Romans 8 through 11, he emphasizes man's free will to choose God. The term I would use to describe um, um, his view at this point of salvation is synergistic. Um, so that is man and God cooperating together uh, unto salvation, so that man works with God to be saved. The Orthodox reform position is the opposite of that. It's monergistic. It's one, singular. So that's what he's kind of going at in Romans 8 through 11. Romans 9, and this is the Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Um, he hypothesized that uh, Paul is not writing about individuals in that case. He's talking about, this is Arminius, not Matt. Let me clarify that. This is Arminius, not Matt. Um, that he's talking about classes of people and not individuals. That's, that's what his, his thrust of his argument is. And then in Romans 13, so this is where uh, Paul deals with the church and the state primarily. He interprets Paul to say the state had the highest authority in religious matters. Um, Previous to him taking any teaching positions, Arminius had pledged to teach the doctrine according to the Belgic Confession. Um, So, he, though, obviously was in direct contrast to what the Belgic Confession says about election in Article 16. Um, So, how influential was he? Um, he began to influence a small group of students in Leiden. Um, you got to understand, there is volumes upon volumes about Arminius, and I haven't read the volumes, okay? So I'm reading, I've read treatments both from the favorable uh, Arminian side and from the anti-Arminian Calvinist side. So I've, there's, a, there's an earnest effort to show him in a certain light by each set of scholars. Um, but he... Oftentimes, many defend him as a sincere and sensitive scholar, but it does appear on some level he was agreeing publicly with one aspect of the confession and then teaching something contrary to it. Um, So I have a quote here, which I think I put up here, so you can follow along with me, so you don't have to just listen to me talk. This is from Roger Nicole. He says, his attitude toward confessional standards was open to question, 
for a theologian of his caliber must have realized there was a substantial rift between his views and the system of teaching, as well as the express utterances of the Heidelberg Catechism and Belgic Confession. Nevertheless, he paraded under the flag of allegiance and under the vows of conformity from the time of his ordination to his death. He repeatedly promised not to teach anything from the pulpit or the university chair, which might be out of keeping with the standards. Obviously, if he had done just that, it is unlikely that he would have been the center of such storms and the rallying point of a whole group of uneasy spirits whose heterodoxy was often more pronounced than his own. So we're going to say the, the generations that follow, Arminius, take it to the next level. Um, so that kind of gives you an idea. The next point is Arminius opposed Orthodox Calvinism's view of salvation. And I've got several things here to add to that, but I think we can touch on those in the next section about the Remonstrance. So, um, Arminius was born in 1560, and he dies in 1609, kind of abruptly, um, most likely died of tuberculosis. So he dies and is not able to carry the mantle further of his teaching. So the next group of people that are providing opposition to the Reformed Church in the Netherlands is a group of people called the Remonstrants. So there's a word remonstrance, which is the, the movement or the document that reveals what the Remonstrants believe. So that's really confusing. So we have the Remonstrants, the people, and then the document. Uh, so upon Arminius's death, his followers issued a statement outlining Arminius's disagreements with Reformed Orthodoxy called the Remonstrance, and they produced this in 1610. There was 42 of these guys that were followers of Arminius that produced this document, and um, they bear the label the Remonstrance. All right, we've belabored that. So their disagreement with the Reformed faith is outlined in five points. So they have a document that says, hey, this is, these are the things that we believe, and they have five points. There's not five points of Calvinism at this point. These are their five points. Let's make sure we're on the same page here. All right. Election is conditioned <clears throat> on foreknowledge or, um, I wrote something else down here, on man's understanding. Election is conditioned on fore foreseen faith or the foreknowledge that God sees who will um, embrace him. Two, Christ died for the elect. Um, lost people are in need of God's grace. So this, if you think about your Calvinistic tulip, this is point one in the Calvinist thing, is total depravity. They call it serious depravity. Four, they say grace can be resisted. And then lastly, um, they did not spell out a specific doctrine about perseverance. They felt like it needed further study. It was not clearly taught from what they could tell in the Scriptures and would require more study. These guys did a great... They, they spell out, these are the things that we disagree with on Calvinistic view of salvation, of soteriology, but there's other aspect, aspects that they would agree uh, with Calvinism in whole, church government, um, the way the church and the state in some ways relate, they might agree, um, but they just were focused on salvation and primarily election. So they appealed at this point, knowing that they were going to get some dissent from the church, 
they actually appealed to the state for protection, um, knowing that the church would perhaps discipline them. And that was in 1610. So 1610 happened, and the synod, which is the crux of our conversation, lesson, happens in 1618. So for eight years, these guys are uh, promoting their views, and the Calvinists are responding to them, but the state hasn't, quote-unquote, sponsored a session or a group of uh, these theologians to get together and to make a final answer. Um, And potentially that could be because they don't want to rock the boat, Um, but there are some aspects of that. But finally, a synod was called in 1618. I'll just, I'll just, there's another aspect of this too. There's a group of people that were kind of opposed uh, to the strictness of the Calvinism of the day because they wanted to protect the order. They had economic interest or uh, um, interest, in, interest surrounding uh, the power of the state. Those things were at play as well. I call those people the opportunists. Um, but there was a very, it was a very volatile situation. I mean, imagine that. Theology was creating the unrest in this entire country. You know, so pretty much if the core unity of the country was dependent upon a consensus or an agreement on theology. A little bit different. Um, it's not really the case today. Um, so finally, a synod is called, if you're on page three, it's called by Prince Maurice of Orange. So we'll get to bring him up again. And it was called to meet in the city of Dorchek in 1618. All the costs associated with it were underwritten by the state. Um, all right, I'm going to use a term, but you've got to understand what I'm saying. It actually wasn't reformed ecumenical um, synod. So when I say synod, that's just a meeting or a council, a group of people coming together to make a decision. Um, But it's ecumenical and reformed. So when you think ecumenical, you think, yes, the Protestants and the Catholics getting together to kind of find some consensus on stuff. This is not the reformed and the the, the Calvinists and the Arminians coming together to get a consensus. When I say ecumenical, ecumenical means it's international. Uh, so it involves those that hold to the Reformed faith outside of the Netherlands. So you've got people from, and this is one of your blanks, so you might have to catch up on writing here. You've got people from Great Britain, from Scotland, uh, from uh, uh, Germany, parts of Germany that hold to the Reformed faith, and you've got people from uh, Geneva and other parts of the Swiss cantons. And then you've got invitations sent to the French Reformed followers, um, and they could not make it because of persecution. So, an international reformed ecumenical synod. How's that sound? Um, that's what we have. So, the, the, the Dutch reformed uh, Calvinists, we'll call them, um, it was their view that the Arminians didn't trust their interpretation of theology. And that's why they kind of had these other, they wanted to make sure what they were teaching wasn't outside the bounds of orthodoxy. Okay? So that's why they brought these other people in. Now, you might say, hey, you just brought in the home team (laughs) to help defend you. 
but they just wanted to say that we're not out of, we, we were not out of bounds in our system outside of what is uh, deemed to be orthodoxy according to the Reformed faith, okay? That was their purpose in doing that. There's 84 total delegates there, and the Armenians were invited, but not as delegates, but as defendants. This is the building, by the way, that they met in, and it was destroyed in 1852, and they said this is a a photograph of it. Was there photography in 1852? Okay, okay. And there's an artistic rendering of the Synod. As you can see, you've got those that are the delegates, most likely on the outside, and on the inside, at the table, are the defendants, the Armenians. Um, the synod was chaired by a man by the name of Johannes Bogerman. So that's your blank under E. <clears throat> and I think, in some level, this will represent the spirit behind the calling of the synod and the hope that the Reformed um, believers at the time were wanting to follow. And Bogerman says, I promise before God in whom I believe and who, whom I worship as being present in this place and as being the searcher of all hearts that during the course of the proceedings of this synod, which will examine and decide not only the five points and all the differences resulting from them, but also any other doctrine, I will use no human writing, but only the word of God, which is an infallible rule of faith. And during all these discussions, I will only aim at the glory of God, the peace of the church, and especially the preservation of the purity of doctrine. So help me, my Savior, Jesus Christ. I beseech him to assist me by his Holy Spirit. So that's, that's, that's how he introduces and prays at the beginning of the synod. So I only have like two minutes, and this was my goal actually, is to tell you kind of what resulted from the Synod, and then we will actually break down the canons of Dort for two weeks in the coming weeks. It won't be next week or the following week, so you've got to remember this stuff, so keep your notes and study on your own. Um, So what results um, primarily is uh, the result was a detailed response to the five points presented by the remonstrance, and this response is called the canons of Dort. Canon means rule or standard. Um, there's kind of the biblical canon. Did, the, did those books meet a certain standard or rule according to the early church fathers? Um, that's what canon means. It's just a standard. Um, I challenge you. You've got a couple weeks before you have to come and listen to me again. It's, if you go online and look for the canons of Dort, you can download them. They're 31 pages, PDF, um, and you can read through them if you'd like. Um, I would challenge you to do that. I think sometimes when we think about theological documents, we kind of think, oh, man, this is, just, this is cold, dead theology. But the canons of Dort aren't written for academics. They're written for you and me, everyday people that want an understanding of theology, okay? So now, the English translations are probably a little older than we're used to reading stuff, so it might be a little bit more difficult, but I would encourage you to read it. It's not just dead theology. It should be life-giving 
and assurance-filled uh, and provide encouragement for worship, humility, and godly living. But other things happened besides that. So they have a, here's our, I think our Latin, proacta. So what they did before, they talked about the Armenian controversy. And then they have the postacta, so which happened after that. And several things happened. They uh, confirmed a new, a new Dutch translation of the Bible. They organized uh, instruction through catechism. They put together a plan for preparing pastors. Um, they outlined the definitive text for the Belgic Confession. They set guidelines for Sunday observance. They're kind of being pulled by the rigidness of the Puritans in England and then maybe a little bit more lax view of Sunday observance uh, from the, those on the continent. So they were kind of doing their own middle way on that. And they updated a new church government, which was very similar to the Scottish Presbyterian, so a Presbyterian structure of government and emphasized less control by the state. Um, so they did all these things. And as you can see, those first few, a translation of the Bible, let's make sure that we have that for our people, um, catechetical or cate yeah, that's right, catechism instructions, that's good. So our people learn the faith, um, preparing pastors. And these are very intentional things they're doing out of care uh, for uh, the members of the church. They're carefully shepherding the people of these congregations. And I think that's important. You've got to see that there's a heart here. It's not like, hey, I just want to stamp out Arminianism. No, we want to say this is the truth based on their understanding of the truth, and they want to educate that way and have a care for people regarding that. It's not just this is what they taught, and it's no, 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 but very carefully examining those things and then uh, providing uh, responses to what Arminius and his followers were teaching. So... I think that's what I want you to see, and I think that's what you can see as you read the Canons of Dort. Everybody nod your head that you will read them. Okay, good. Um, just to get an idea of how um, pastoral they are. The same thing with the Heidelberg Catechism. Very pastoral and uh, sensitive and compassionate towards people. Um, those things are for our benefit, and the Lord has used them to work uh, for our joy and for our good and ultimately for His glory. So, Okay. That's all I have for today. I'm going to pray. And then I did not... Is there a... Rodney, is there a bulletin back there? Okay. We'll do announcements on the fly. But let's pray first. Oh, Father, we uh, praise you for today. Lord, we praise you for the preservation of your truth and of your church. And Lord, I uh, am grateful, Lord, just to, to think about these things and consider them and to um, exalt in your great name. So, Lord, I pray as we um, cons consider these human documents, Lord, I pray that we would uh, examine them in comparison to Scripture as our sole authority, and, Lord, that we would also um, look to see how our lives can be changed as we examine these doctrines closely. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We ask that you would bless um, our worship of you as we go to our worship service. Pray, Lord, for the preaching of your word, that it would go forth with power. In Christ's name I pray, amen.